All right, I invite you all to stand as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of the word today. We're in Matthew 10 again, verses 32 through 40, and then 46 through 52. It says, They were on the way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may grab a seat. We are still on our, in the Gospel of Mark, going verse by verse, and following Jesus on the road to the cross. And if you've been here the past couple of weeks, you would know that we've already preached and read from that passage, uh, those passages twice now, reflecting on this question, what do you want me to do for you, from Jesus? That, and I've tried to make the case that Jesus takes a high interest in our desires and our wants. That ultimately it's our desires, what we want, what is our will that really stirs the drink. That's what really res- uh, uh, affects how we will receive the gospel and respond to his word. Much more than what we think or believe, even what we feel, those things are secondary to what we deeply want. Our desires, what stirs the drink. And so Jesus is interested in what it is that we want. And those, ha- those desires are reflected in our behaviors and our, desi- our, our habits. And those desires ultimately lead to Jesus. We are ultimately dissatisfied with everything that attempts to quench our desire in this world except for Jesus. And so that's why Jesus wants to draw them to that question, what do you want to do for you? But the past two weeks, we talked about more about we are like the recipients of that question. We are the disciples or blind Bartimaeus. But today I want to more reflect on us being Jesus in this case. If all that stuff is true about desire, how does that impact how we engage with people if we're trying to lead them towards Jesus? Or even engage with other Christians if we're discipling towards Jesus? So how do we imitate Jesus' ways when we engage in gospel conversations? We're trying to follow his lead because that's how he chose to do ministry. Let's put ourselves in his shoes. This all hinges on the definition of a disciple, where we never use now, but a disciple does what Jesus does. Jesus' disciples do what he does. 
They are with him to become like him in order to do what he does. We see that even in this passage here, that this just is normal kind of description of the disciples and their relationship with Jesus. They, were, they together, were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were following behind him, and Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem. The disciples were with Jesus every waking moment. They were becoming like him, and in the course of that, they were doing what he does. And what kinds of stuff was Jesus doing along the road? Well, he was teaching, he was healing, he was exercising demons, but he also was making new disciples. And when he encountered the blind man, he does a miracle for the blind man. He demonstrates that he, that he not only fulfills the blind man's surface desire to see, but his ultimate deeper desire that Jesus is kind of the fulfillment of everything. He receives his sight and doesn't just say thank you and walks away, but he becomes a new disciple following Jesus on the road. So a disciple is not, it's, it's a learner and a student, but it's more of the closest thing in our culture would be like an apprentice. We have had some plumbing work too many times over the past several, to the point that I have some PTSD about plumbing. Man, when the, it's raining hard in the middle of the night, I'd like get up and go check my whole house. I'm like, I bet there's water somewhere where there's not supposed to be water. But when the plumber guy comes, he often has an apprentice with him that goes with him all day, learns from him, and over the course of time starts to imitate and do what he does. And so if we are followers of Jesus, we don't just receive his good gifts and blessings, but we end up getting to do what he does. So Jesus made disciples, and if we are his disciples, he invites us to do the same and to do it his way, to adopt Jesus's mission and do it in his way through his means. This is actually good news for us. If you remember last week, I talked about that a way that Jesus fulfills our desires is that we want to belong deeply, to be known and to be loved and we want to contribute. Human beings are driven by this need to contribute something to the world. And by getting to participate in Jesus' mission, you are summoned into service with the Most High God. The King of the universe thinks that you are a valuable partner to him. That is good news. Everybody in this room is a valuable partner to him in ministry. And sometimes that's like, oh, yeah, interesting. Well, what else? But if you imagine someone that's like famous, and like really a powerful person in the world, and they want you in their inner circle, people feel really special to associate with a famous human being all the time. Now, you're, this is like to, with God. He summons all of us to join him in the service. That is good news. It meets a deep need, and you don't have to have any qualifications other than simply wanting to want what Jesus wants, and he does the rest. Jesus does the heavy lifting after he invites us into ministry. And so with that, we want to talk about imitating Jesus' mission and ways. He does it through three ways. He engages in gospel conversations with people of peace. He asks curious questions to learn what they want. And he invites them towards letting Jesus fulfill his deepest desires. So let's first talk about engaging in conversations with people of peace. This word person of peace is rooted in Luke 10 when Jesus sends out the 70. He has 70 people. He sends them out to do what he does. Go do healings. Go teach my ways. Go announce my kingdom to people. And he tells them, when you go to a person's house, if they're a person of peace, they will be warm and receive you into their home. And he invites them to then trust that those people are ready to receive this word. So a person of peace is someone essentially who likes you and is open to you. Someone who wants to learn from you. Someone who's drawn to you. Someone who you like too. You get along well. Maybe you get along well with everything else. And then Jesus is a, is a peace that will come into that. And so you can see both the disciples 
Ambly and Bartimaeus show that they are people of peace. James and John, sons of Zebedee, two of his disciples, they come to Jesus and they address him with an authoritative and respectful word. And now they're going to engage him in a conversation and he's ready to engage with them because it's clear they like Jesus. They are warm and open to him and want to learn from him. Jesus doesn't start with the person whose heart is hard and who's resistant to browbeat them and coerce them into learning from him. It's a more invitational approach to people who already are drawn to him and want to learn from him. That's who he starts with, who is likes you and is open to you. And blind Bartimaeus says the same thing when he clearly addresses Jesus and has a need. He sees Jesus as one worthy of respect, someone he's willing to learn from, someone he's, wants to, he's asking for mercy from. And Jesus, when he's on the road, followed by, who knows, dozens of people, maybe even hundreds, Lots of other people lining on the road. He stops to engage with Bartimaeus because Bart is a person of peace. He's open. He's warm. He wants to want what Jesus wants. He likes Jesus. He's curious from Jesus. He wants to learn from him. And so for us, that question, who in your life is drawn to you? Who's open to you? Who's comfortable with you? That is a person of peace. When the king of the universe invites you into ministry with him, you get to do it with people who are kind of drawn to you, someone who's got a softened heart towards you and who's already kind of drawn. Who is that for you? Whoever that is, you should pray for them. If you're like, I can't think of anyone, pray for those people to come into your life. Are we praying for the opportunity to partner with Jesus to share about his love? Pray for those kind of people. And if you don't think of anyone, then that might mean put yourself around some people. I think in our culture, it's very easy to be isolated and you're not really around hardly anyone. Man, join a club, go play somewhere, be outside in public, go to the library, be around people where you rub shoulders, where you might engage with a person of peace. You never know where you'll find one. And so person of peace is who Jesus starts with. When we partner with him in mission, we start with people of peace as well. Then you get to asking curious questions to learn what all they want. What do you want me to do for you? This is a key thing. When we talk about engaging with people in gospel conversations, we are oftentimes, think, imagine ourselves and other people as just brains on a stick. And you want to engage with ideas and debates. For a long time, the key way to do mission was a field called apologetics, where we think, we kind of imagine ahead all the things skeptical people will say about Jesus and then come prepared with all the answers. And it does not work <laughs> because they don't want this, man. I remember uh, being with uh, a student named Kevin Johnson when I was at UC doing college ministry. And this brother was brilliant, scientific mind. He's like off the chain with all these science stuff. And I'm meeting him for Chick-fil-A and it's all, he's hitting me with all these questions about science. And I'm like batting them away and like moving them all around. And I'm like trying to just dive through and like duck and weave and make sure he doesn't trap me. And then it's like a four hour conversation. And I'm like, tell me about your relationship with your dad. What's that like? He's like, well, he drugged me to church all the time. And he was desperate that I played baseball and he knew I didn't want to play baseball. I'm like, I wonder if that would keep you from being open to all the stuff we're talking about. And the conversation turned because it got to about desire, not just about his beliefs and practice. So think of other ways to ask the kind of question that Jesus asked, or maybe ask the kind of question I try to get Kevin to think about. Questions like, what do you longer hope for? What do you wish you could change? What do you daydream about? What fills their minds up? What do they look forward to? What excites them? What are they looking forward to? What do they despise? What bothers them? What frustrates them? This is the kind of stuff that gets to the heart 
of what really drives a person, what it is they want. It gets the conversation away from the heady stuff, which terrifies many of us, and into the stuff that really drives them, that really actually is motivating them, stuff they may not often think about, but more a lens through which they engage the world. That's how you operate, too. When someone's trying to influence you or when you're like maybe going to receive some teaching from someone, you don't want to start with like where you all disagree so they can debate you. You want them to be engaged with you and learn from the people that have influenced you probably got to you in that way. So you ask those kind of questions, and what you might find is this. You might want to find this area from this quote from Ronald Varheiser. He says, it's no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we are forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it is hard to come to simple rest. Desire is always stronger with satisfaction. So this leads with the presumption that whatever it is they long for is probably a deep and good desire that is not satisfied. I'm curious then, where is that frustration for people? Where is that rub for them? And that might be an entry point to good news, to a better news that goes beyond their surface desires. Rollheiser goes on. Spirituality is ultimately what we do with that desire, specifically what we do with that gap between that desire and that satisfaction. What shapes our actions is our spirituality, and what shapes our actions is basically what shapes our desires. Desire makes us act, and when we act, we, what we do will either lead to a greater integration or disintegration within our personalities, minds, and bodies, and to the strengthening or deterioration of our relationship to God, others, and the cosmic world. And so kind of a question that underlies this curiosity about the desires, where is their dissatisfaction and what do they seem to want to do with it? And this is not to play gotcha. These are not like an interrogation kind of questions. It's not let's try to trap them to win an argument. Let's try to make them in silence so that we can conquer them with our ideas and our answers. It's genuine curiosity about what makes them tick. And who knows how much you might learn about your own desires and dissatisfaction within them. Find people endlessly interesting. This is an image of God you're dealing with here. This is someone that God deeply cares for and who matters deeply, who has seemingly infinite interior life. And you get to be invited with the spirit of the living God to engage that person about how they think about the deepest things they long for. Man, how cool is that? That's what we get to do. Find people endlessly interesting. They're not in your way. They're not boring. They are interesting. Something's making them tick. And we get to partner with the living God to, to investigate that and learn from them. But what we hope might be revealed, like that conversation by my friend Kevin, is what that dissatisfaction is. My man had a deep father wound. A lot of people got father wounds. That father wound was associated with the church and with Jesus. Maybe me engaging with him over Chick-fil-A was one step towards opening that up. That dude came to Christ a few weeks after that. There was a wall torn down despite he was bantering me with scientific stuff for that, you know, three hours. It really wasn't the issue. The issue was like, do you even want this? Do you want Jesus? And so, as we get there, 
there's eventually a point in the relationship where we may gently invite them towards letting Jesus fulfill their deepest desires. I think a lot of times, well-meaning, kind Christians kind of have a hope that niceness will win people over to Jesus. I'd just be nice to everybody. You'd be nice to me. I'd be nice to you. Jesus is kind of for me, but maybe your desires get met some other way. That's not Christian. A, a core gospel belief would be that everybody in the world needs Jesus. If they don't have Jesus, they're majorly lacking something. Their life would be better in the moment and in the age to come if they knew how much Jesus loved them. They are loved by the living God, and they need to know that. Human beings have an urge, a need to that. We're all orphans until we come to the grips with how much our Father in Heaven deeply loves us and longs to be in relationship with us. And so we have to step into the awkwardness, the discomfort, the weirdness, probably even our own baggage with Jesus and with the church in order to engage people to let them see that Jesus is where this ache comes from. And maybe you have to tell them that you have your own dissatisfactions and hungers and unmet longings and desires that are unquenched, but that you're learning how to slowly submit them to Jesus. If the kind of stuff we talked about the past couple weeks stirs up in you and you recognize, man, you're wrestling, that's good. Now you can invite them into that, not from the place of you should because I know how it's done, but man, I'm learning to find my, my ultimate desires are fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus does this first with his disciples who have an unfulfilled desire, second with Bartimaeus who gets a fulfilled one. So the disciples ask to be on his right and left. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking me. You don't really know how much you're really asking to die on crosses with me. That's what you're asking for. And he's like, can you, can you suffer like I'm suffering? They're like, we can. We can do this. And he's like, you will get this desire fulfilled. You're going to follow me to your death. But to sit on my right and left hand, that's for two other people. They're going to die a different kind of death with me. So they essentially tell Jesus what they want. Jesus says, no, yes, but kind of. And then he invites them into deeper trust and intimacy from that place. So your conversations with people might reveal that they want something, and it might even be a really, really good want, but it's an unfulfilled want, which would make me think about how Jesus may draw their unfulfilled desire towards more intimacy with him. You might have to share that. I'm sure everyone in this room has unfulfilled wants. They might even be good ones. They might even be Christian ones. You might think, how, I don't understand how a good God wouldn't grant me this. It doesn't seem to be asking for much. It seems good stuff. And if you have that, that wound is a great place to draw people in. Follow Henry Nouwen's lead. He's a Catholic priest who wrote the book called The Wounded Healer, and he knew his wounds. He was a tearful man, but he invited people into Jesus from the place of his wounds. And so questions like, to a person, can you imagine Jesus still being with you and for you, even if he doesn't meet that particular one? Or could God still be good, even if he meets that deep hope you have in a different kind of way? Are we open to that possibility? The gospel will invite us to be open for that kind of possibility, especially in this world now that is broken where sin and evil and death are still present, though God has crushed those enemies once for all. These questions invite people to consider an imagination beyond their tunnel vision. You've been with people that want something really deeply, and it's actually a good want. 
they have a loved one who's an outstanding person and want that person to get well. That is a good want. And you have to imagine, can Jesus be good even if he doesn't meet that? It's a good one. It's a mystery why he won't do it right now. Can you imagine God loving you enough, being for you and with you to still show you his love in that place? Because sometimes that place of pain, the real pain is not the, the, the actual pain itself. It's a sense of abandonment. No one knows my pain like me, and I, maybe God isn't around. If I feel this way, maybe he's not around. Your questions and invitations help you consider Jesus is willing to meet them in that space right there. Or to uh, people, when I share the gospel with them, sometimes I try to make the question, would you like the gospel to be true? They're clearly mad about it. If it turned out to be true, would you be glad or frustrated? I had a walk with a guy in my neighborhood uh, a while back. I maybe told this story before. I can't remember. Um, but he, was, uh, he found out I was a preacher. You never know how people respond with that. Sometimes people shut the conversation down. Sometimes they tell me all of their spiritual beliefs and conclusions and expect me to affirm them. Sometimes they argue. This man chose to argue. And I'm, and I'm like trying to batter around his arguments too. And, if, and they're all intellectual arguments. Eventually I have this said, do you want this to be true? Like if you found out the gospel was true, would, that, would you like that? He was like, no, I don't like the story. I'm like, that is going to influence how you hear everything I'm saying to you. I would think about why it is the case you hate that story. And what story do you like instead? The conversation ended. I haven't seen him since, but at least turned it. <laughs> I saw him walking recently. I should just come up behind him and sneak up all preacherly and invite him again. But that dude, he, he thinks he wants to argue, and he thinks I want to argue with him. But if I make it about what he really likes and wants, it really gets to the heart of things. What do you dislike about this? You might, maybe might agree. I might not like the story too, but it's the best story of all the stories, and I'm choosing to learn how to trust it. Maybe you can too. But the blind man, he gets a desire fulfilled. The prayer is answered. He gets it. He wants something so bad that he gets it, and Jesus draws him into intimacy with him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. That's all he wants. Make me well to see, and I'll be done. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you, but he received his sight and didn't go away without gratitude, but he instead followed Jesus along the road. He, invite, he let that healing of the surface level want that was good draw him deeper into intimacy. And last week I talked about there's times when we get a prayer answered, something we deeply hunger for, and the ache still is there. It doesn't quite quench the depth of it. And so Jesus can draw his fulfilled desire towards more intimacy with him. And so maybe a person you're engaging with has a lot of stuff going well for them. Praise God. They set their goals. They conquered them. I wonder if there's still a deeper ache. Maybe there's an invitation to that person. Are you getting everything you wanted? You set out when you were young that you were going to get this degree and get this kind of job and this kind of home and this kind of uh, spouse and this kind of vacation trips and this kind of... How's it going? How's it working for you? Are you getting everything you wanted? You got, is, is life good? You feel like your full desire is quenched? Maybe there's more to it. Jesus is inviting that blind man to consider that, and he did. He followed Jesus along the road. And so... That's how we can think about our conversations with them. And many times, I've been pushed on this recently. Aaron may mention this when I invite him to share a little bit because I'm kind of taking, I like this that he shared this with me. That you can pray with them in their presence. Not just praying for them, I'll pray for you later on. But when you pray with someone, it acknowledges the Spirit of God is in this room and, and cares about them even more than you do and invites them to have an encounter with this Spirit of the living God right then and there. That will transcend Whatever you think you can contribute with your arguments and your discussions and your questions. And sometimes I imagine 
well, I'm well prepped, and I think about this, and I have quick, I'm a quick-witted responder, and like, that's enough. No, it's not. It doesn't do it. It only happens through this kind of invitation that God does the real work with the person. And so that's ultimately where we land here. All the prep can matter all, all at once. It's nice to be prepared, but I love Jesus' line in Mark 9 when he says, this kind can only come out by prayer. You pray for people of peace to enter your life. You pray that you would have the courage to engage with curiosity, with genuine humility and love, with boldness, with an openness that you too get to encounter the love of God in a unique way by partnering with him. Every time I pray for our service before we start here with people that are part of the service, I pray that they would eat first. That when they are partnering with God to serve these people and invite you all into worship, that they would come to know God in a different way by being a part of the leadership and the servant. This is the same way when we pray that we would have opportunities. We pray that we would be bold and courageous and loving and curious and open-handed and that we ourselves would encounter God's love. And we pray with them, acknowledging that God loves them even more we can ever imagine. And therefore, he could and would and has and will break in again and soften their heart. And you never know what can come from that. These kind can only come out by prayer, not by our skill set, not by our prep, not by our intellect, not by our personality type, not by us having all of our ducks in a row, not through technology and other kinds of means of gathering enough resources. It's about the people of God practicing the presence of God and begging God to do a new and fresh work to invite people into his love again. He's already done the work. He did the heavy lifting by dying on a cross and conquering Satan and eliminating sin and telling us death would not get the last word. He's already done the work by giving us the spirit in our actual bodies to give us with wisdom and giftings. He's done the work by putting us in people's lives. He will do that work in the end and invite us to share in that forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may we not take lightly the good news that we get to partner with you in a world-changing, eternal mission. Give us humility and patience and courage. Maybe reflect your character. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I wanted our brother Aaron to come up and share. He was telling me a story recently from his time in D.C. with one of his neighbors, and I was like, that is gold. I wanted him, I wanted him to tell it to you all as well. So give a hand for my brother Aaron to share the story. That was some good stuff, man. Um, I might weave in a little story of my own neighborly failure that you had with your neighbor that made me think about it's it's a part of this story. So uh, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I planted a church in Silver Spring, Maryland, um, 11, 12 years ago or so. And the first year we lived there, we moved into this rental house in this neighborhood in downtown Silver Spring. And some, for some context here, Silver Spring is... Uh, the fourth most diverse city in the U.S. It's more diverse than New York City. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C. It's a very northern tip of Washington, D.C. And where Maryland and D.C. and Virginia meet, it is the richest, most educated part of the entire world. You won't find, you look at all the demographics, me, a guy that graduated with a 2.9 GPA undergrad, and I'm rolling into D.C., and I'm like, well, I can't argue these people into faith. That's not going to happen. They're all smarter than me. They're all more educated than me. So the person of peace concept was what we adopted, Luke 10. If they like me and I like them, I view that as a sign, and Carrie viewed that as a sign that, that the Holy Spirit is 
paving a, a road there that we're going to explore. We moved into this neighborhood, and the first person I met was one of our neighbors, and she asked me, what do you do? Which is, that's the DC thing to do. What's your name? What do you do? They want to know what you do for a living. And uh, pastor was the word, and as Anthony said, it can end a lot of conversations really quick. Um, the, the quick story that reminded that he was sharing reminded me of, I was at the park one time, because in the city, we're always at the park. That's where you kind of go with your kids. I'm an introvert. I'm not some guy that's chatting up everybody at the park. But if I noticed my kids playing with one, like a particular group of kids over and over again, I would introduce myself to the parents. Met this one guy who had just moved into our neighborhood, got his cell phone number. We, you know, there's some relational chemistry. I invited him to our Super Bowl party, which another, that's a person, a piece tip, throw good parties. All right, people want to come to that. If you throw a good, good party, they will enjoy themselves. So I invited him. They came. Somewhere in the midst of that, one of my neighbors outed me as a pastor, and this couple just left never to be seen or heard from again. I texted them, nothing, never saw them at the park. They, they wanted nothing to do with the pastor. So it was just a funny rejection story. So it'll come too, but met the neighbor. She, you know, I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, I'm an atheist. You probably don't want to talk to me anymore. And I laughed because was, she was like snarky and blunt. And I'm like, ooh, I like you. And we ended up becoming friends. Our, our family spent a lot of time with each other many meals. She was kind of the neighborhood uh, party thrower, lots of campfires and block parties, and a friendship began to form between our families. And um, it was great, but as life happens, we all know that life is unpredictable and life is painful. And pain entered their life. You know, they were really educated. They had no, no need for God, no interest in God until the pain came. And they went through this really horrible, contentious divorce. And I was in the middle of it <clears throat> because I began counseling the husband as he noticed some things in their marriage that were concerning to him. And in the middle of that, he discovered an affair. And I was there in his home when he discovered the affair. And he just collapsed into my arms in pain and, and, and weeping. And I just held him. And it was the most, by far, the most intimate moment we had had together. And in the coming weeks and months, as we had conversations, and I did what Anthony said and asked him lots of questions like, how are you feeling? What do you want from this? What, what does recovery look like? He started to name some things, and I started to pray with him, not for him. Because we do that, don't we? Like, I'll pray for you. But I said, Let me, let's pray with, I want to pray with you. And whenever I've asked someone if I could pray with them, I've literally never been turned down all right they're open to it and so i prayed and one of the prayers i prayed for him was i pray that you would forgive your wife and that you would not hate her because they had a daughter together and i knew they're gonna have to co-parent this kid together and so i prayed that a few times for him and I, again it was really really messy uh mostly pain mostly me wondering like god where are you at in this what is going on months later i'm laying on my couch one night and I'm really feeling really dejected about where our church is at. Like, I want people to know Christ. I'm just not seeing any fruit. God, where are you at in this? I'm asking him really hard, angry questions. Knock on my door, and it's, it's my neighbor. It's the husband who I've been kind of walking through. And uh, he had had a TV shipped to our house, and he was worried that it was going to get stolen off of his front porch. Because I was like, why is there a TV in my house all of a sudden? What's going on here? And we laughed about that, and then I helped him carry it over to his house. And then I'm, I'm walking out, and he stops me. He's like, hey, 
real quick, I wanted to tell you, I believe in God now. And I was like, just stupefied. I was speechless. You'd think, like, I'm trained for this moment, like, right? I'm supposed to, like, okay, this is where I'm going to walk him through. And I just couldn't spit out anything. I was, I was like, why? <laughs> That's all I said. Why? Re- real great response. But he said, look, I have no reason to, or I, he said, I have every reason to hate my wife. And I don't. And I cannot explain it. And the only reason I can come up with is that you specifically prayed that I wouldn't. And I don't. And I love her. And I believe in God now. And I walked home like, I mean, just overwhelmed with the power of the person of peace. Like, oh, when we do a Jesus date, it works. Even though sometimes it doesn't. Rejection, it doesn't. I mean, Jesus faced rejection. We're going to as well. And then the power of prayer. People don't want to be argued into faith. People don't want to be our projects. People want to experience God. And when we pray with them, we just guide them into the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he takes over. And miracles happen. That's it.